Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Today, the stuff part is increasingly in the forefront because we're going to be talking about fabrics. My guest is Daniel Harris of the London Cloth Company. And Daniel, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, Nick. Uh, my name is Daniel Harris, and I am a weaver. I started the London Cloth Company some time ago. Um, uh, we weave um, all sorts of things on a ever-increasing uh, number of looms, from dating from as early as 1870 uh, now to literally present. Now, the way you just sort of went through that intro, it makes it sound like you're just a regular weaving company. But I know there's a little more behind it than that, because when you started, it wasn't, let's buy a new loom. I know a lot about weaving. Let's go, was it? No. So the thing with weaving, so you think, okay, you look at it, and you go, oh, look at this. How hard can it be? Okay. So I'm going to go out and get a loom, and uh, that's all I need. Well, no. Um, so I, I cannot emphasize enough how stupid and naive I was when I started this. Um, and, and not much different now, to be honest. But um, so I started off with one loom that didn't work. And then um, that one was probably from the 20s. But the good thing is, um, you know, anything that's broken, you can fix it yourself. So you buy one and you sort of, okay, what's missing? And then you get another one to make the first one work. And so then you've got the first one working. Oh, that's great. But then there's this sort of sad looking other one over in the corner that's all sort of had bits nicked off it. So then you're like, oh, well, I better get that one going too. And then you realize that actually to do this properly, you also need uh, a pern winder and a cone winder and a warping mill and a creel. And then you're making all this fabric. So then you need a machine to roll all the fabric. And then it just gets out of hand and you end up with 55 tons of machinery. Because if you have one working uh, loom, that's probably not enough. You probably it's never enough. Stumble. No, no, it's never enough. No, so I I don't know how many looms I've got um, that don't that well. Um, I've got a lot of looms that are probably that have never run, um, and but they're they're I'm constantly getting things welded and cast. Get a lot of casting done now um, to completely remake them. So yeah, they'll they'll work eventually. But yep. Would you say that you're a sort of loom hoarder or are these all sort of projects that will one day come to no, fruition? No, because no. <laughs> the thing is with hoarding is people sort of, they don't necessarily use it all. Uh, so very, especially when we had the very big place in London, everything has to work in some way. It's got to, because the, the per square foot value of the space, it's got to do something to warrant being there. Otherwise you just can't... Um, because it's costing you so much to just have it so and keep it so you, you've got to it's got to pay for itself and, and this is this is what sort of differentiated it off at the beginning from being a museum in that um why can't you have a museum that sort of pays for itself basically now clearly with this um what you're doing you come from a, a sort of long family background of uh, both weavers and engineers and uh, restorers of heritage machinery uh, that would have made it a lot easier no no <laughs> uh, my dad's uh so my dad's job doesn't it's, it's like so many people listening to this are going to be like what's the yellow pages so my dad used to be the guy one of the people who made the yellow pages actually physically made them like the printers in the days before computers. Like, when was the last time you saw a copy of the Yellow Pages? So, yeah, right? 
But your background then isn't weaving. It's, I mean, where, where did you start out? What What is your background? So um, I actually uh, started off as a sewing machinist um, doing sewing. And I did, I, I trained to do that. I actually have a degree in sewing. Um, that degree, <laughs> unfortunately, the it was a very old degree. Uh, that sort of got started in the 70s by this guy called Michael Pope. It was actually called a costume interpretation. It was at Wimbledon School of Art. It doesn't exist anymore. And this guy started in the 70s, and it was really well thought of. Um, we were actually there. <laughs> he was a, a bit of a character, and um, anyone... Uh, just a, uh, a legend of, of costume stuff and teaching. And so I think he started in about 1975, something like that. And... Um, actually, while we were there, he did. He actually died in our second year, um, which was like terrible, obviously. But um, we sort of, it was it was proper sewing. Uh, it was absolutely soul destroying. Anyone who does sewing, uh, you know, it's a it's a fight against yourself, basically. And um, so the whole of the first year was spent making this folder of samples. Um, so you had to do a wealth pocket, a double jet pocket, a single jet pocket. All these pockets, I can't even remember them all. Um, there are something like seven ways to do a well pocket, and they're all shit. Like I just awful. And they're so I was I was honestly the worst in the class. And this is not I'm not just saying this. I was categorically the worst in the class. And so you'd go up to this little window, and there's this lady in there, and you'd show her these samples and go, "Is this okay?" And she goes, "No, it's wrong. Do it again." And off you'd go, and you just do it again. It was oh god. And I think that was like a year of just doing that. And the thing was, oh, and then we had another tutor called Mervyn Wallace, who was amazing. He was, you always knew. <laughs> um, so they'd get you making like welt pockets for waistcoats and stuff with pinstripe. And they, you'd have to match the pinstripe. I don't think I ever made it past sewing on the welt because my stripes never met, matched up. So that was that. And um, then, <laughs> so I finished that. Um, I did end up, I wasn't the worst in the class at the beginning, but the, the, the people who were worse than me, they actually got to leave. So then by the end of it, I really was the worst in the class. And it was had a lot of um, uh, a lot of girls in it from Scandinavia who'd been sewing forever. Um, so I, I hadn't got a chance really, because I really was crap. And then I finished that and promised that I'd never do sewing again and moved to Australia and then started sewing for the uh for for drag shows believe it or not um the stage adaptation of priscilla queen of the desert so i did that and then came back and sort of then i did a postgraduate in pattern cutting and that was that really and did sewing for a while in london so you're saying that you weren't really a terrible sewer, it was just everyone else who was really no, brilliant. I, I, I learned an insane amount in australia i was working with um, a lot. So again, the place I work, I have a very strange work history. Um, yeah, the place I worked in Australia was amazing and working with these guys who were just off the hook. And I mean, back then they would have been definitely in their sixties and seventies, I suppose. Um, and yeah, that, that learned, I learned more probably in the year of working with them than I did the whole time I was on my degree. 
Um, and when I finished working in the costume shop uh, for the, the, the costume makers, then I went and worked in a factory in Cabramatta making um, production, making dance wear. Um, and yeah, that was also quite entertaining. So yeah. <laughs> and, and then you came back to, uh, to England again. Yeah, yeah. And um, then just one of those weird chance meetings, I bumped into somebody who I'd known before I went away. And uh, what's really bizarre is we've gone full circle. She now lives about five doors that way, which is bizarre. So um, Rachel um, bumped into her and she said, oh, yeah, I'm doing this TV commercial. Can you come and do some sewing on it? And went and did that. And all I wanted was a job. I didn't actually want to go freelance again. I just desperately wanted a real job, like a real boy. And then, um, no, and I had just got caught up in in doing that and ended up sewing for another eight years. And then, then sort of revisited this idea of making my own fabric. But you were sewing for eight years for television commercials or what was that for? It was for all sorts of things. So I ended up with a small factory um, on Shakawal Lane, uh, which is, again, weirdly now where I live again. Um, so we had all the sewing machines you could ever need. So cover stitch, flat beds, buttonhole machines, blah, 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 twin needle machines, all this sort of stuff. And um, whatever came through the door would make it. So that could be anything, um, like making samples for Adidas for the Olympics or making... Um, uh, what else have we? Oh, the weirdest stuff. Um, oh, God, we made some adult baby costumes for a TV commercial. We've made all. Oh, God. Um, I should have checked this really beforehand. I can't. There's so many different things um, working for uh, all different levels of the industry. I think you mentioned Disney to me once. Uh, so I work a lot more for Disney now. Um, so I, we did, we didn't do a lot of in the sewing. We didn't do a lot of sort of big films, but we did sort of smaller stuff um, and also small production runs for. So if a brand couldn't really hit the minimums to go to a big factory, we would just make the um, the smaller amounts. So if somebody just wanted like ten or something. So, or, or awkward, weird stuff that they wanted multiples of. Um, I'll just hang on. Okay, here's a good example. So we used to do, um, we did a lot of stuff for Sky and um, sort of TV, awful TV commercials. Um, oh, yeah, we did it. Oh, we worked for Cabris for ages doing all those. There was a whole series of cabris commercials and everything in the in the workshop ended up purple that was quite good we worked for asos for a little while doing a few samples for them um just it doesn't it it it, it really it wasn't like masses of work and then we oh yeah we used to go and uh, fit all of the collection um for show before tommy hill figure that was quite fun uh, go and do that. There's a lot, basically, it sounds great, doesn't it? But at the end of the day, it was all just staying up for days, um, drinking insane amounts of coffee and just not sleeping for days, a lot of these jobs. Um, 
yeah, I'm trying to think of other interesting things we might have done. <laughs> it sounds uh, sounds less sort of soul destroying than just working in a plain factory churning out a thousand size thirty two trousers, though. Oh no, it was great. Yeah, like I I loved it. Um, yeah, and then I'm just I'm just looking at a list here of all these things to try and remind me. I think I must have sort of yeah memory. I'm not good at stuff. Like, the other thing is I don't tend to dwell on a project much. So, um, yeah, I've had, a again, really bizarre, the, num the, the all these different jobs that I've had. Um, so I, want, I met the Sitwells and went to stay at the house one time, which is amazing. And we were putting in this exhibition. And, um, and Lady Sitwell, who was very, I'm not sure quite how old she was then, but they, they, you look at them and they're just always looking onto what they're going to do next, never dwelling on, oh, well, we've done that. We'll sort of rest on this for a while. It's keep going forward and and I remember thinking at and so one thing that was really stupid is I didn't really document any of my work so we never took pictures of anything which was pretty stupid so yeah you have to explain to me who the Sitwells are um Osbert Sitwell who was her father so they have a, a big stately home up in um oh Derbyshire I think so this is the really strange thing. I was, this is, <laughs> I've through doing all these very bizarre jobs for the last X amount of time, um, I've ended up with this sort of phone of, that sort of spans sort of from cr like criminals and all sorts of people all the way through the spectrum up to sort of uh, working with, at stately homes and stuff like that. It's, it's, it's quite interesting, yeah. So you're saying the, the sewing and weaving industry spans everything from criminals to aristocracy. You're going to have to say a bit more here. Criminals aren't buying a lot of fabric, but I have um, I've, <laughs> I have got them to help me out on certain occasions. <laughs> um, yeah, I can, I can see your face looking really confused. Um, when we when we had the mill in Essex, we made some we made friends with some really interesting people. All retired now. But um, so the criminals aren't just the landlords; they are genuine no, criminals. No, genuine. Yeah. So the the best thing about this job has been the people we've met, by far. I mean, just all sorts of amazing people. Uh, we especially when I go and so sometimes if I'm buying machinery, I'll be buying it from a mill. But if I'm buying it from a mill that's closed down, it could have closed down 10 years ago, 14 years ago, 20 years ago. And so um, one of the most interesting people that I've met was a guy called John McKenzie. He was like proper, proper super scouse. And he had absolutely no interest in all the machinery and stuff in this mill whatsoever, but he'd bought it with some of his friends. And um, he, I mean, this guy was just amazing to talk to. Um, he's got, he's sort of a, well, at the time when I met him, he was a sort of property person. And so we went to look at this mill and uh, we made a deal that I'd buy everything in it. It'd been sitting there for about 10, 15 years, completely just with all the machinery abandoned in it. So we did this deal and I hated John McKenzie at first until I got to know him a bit more. And one day we'd finished moving a load of machinery and we went to the pub and he goes, well, you know, I wasn't always into property. I'm actually an inventor. I was like, really, John, tell me all about this. And he goes, yeah, I invented a bomb proof dustbin. I was like, 
Oh my fucking god, this is brilliant. Okay, just keep talking, John. So he brings out this iPad, and no one has explained to him the concept of a touchscreen. He's like, bam, slam, like punching this thing to get it to work. It, like no touch at all. It's just like anyway. He brings up this tiny video of sort of Salisbury Plain, and then way in the distance, there's this massive explosion. <laughs> he's like, yeah. So <laughs> I'm not going to do the voice, but he goes, yeah, I'm, no, I am. I invented a bombproof dustbin and like you could stand right by it and be completely fine, but it'll be fucking deaf like. I mean, he was hilarious. Everything was hilarious with him. And so these this is all real. He made these incredible spun steel bins that you could literally put a bomb in and they would go off and all the energy would be funneled somewhere up, I suppose, not out. And sold them to airports and all kinds of things. Anyway, then for probably five years after, I'd phone him every few months just to be like, hey, John, what are you up to? And the stuff that he was get up to is unbelievable. Like, oh, I'm selling biomass to the Koreans. They'll burn anything. Like all these stories. And then one time I phoned him and he was working for the Royal Marines. I mean, it's bizarre, like hilarious. So yeah, John McKenzie, everybody. <laughs> So you're saying that people in the secondhand mill loom uh, scene can be different? Uh, yeah, yeah. I've met, I mean, he's just one example. I've been so many interesting people. So, yeah. And then all the hauliers are some of my favourites. So this, uh, the last couple of weeks, I got to work with All Heavy again. So I've always used the same two companies to do all my moving. And they are fantastic. Um it gets to a certain point where, you know, I'm, I'm very familiar with hiring cranes and high abs and lots of trucks and stuff like this. And so I have one company in London that I use and I have one company up, up north that I use. And obviously I've done so much with these guys. We're now sort of all quite good pals. And so I got to work with them this week. And if you watch them, I mean, the, the main guy is called Big Jim. And Big Jim, they're like they're a machinery moving company. He doesn't lift none of them lift anything their technique is incredible everything is um levers and jacks and wheels and oh just so so skilled incredibly good at their job never break anything and we're talking sort of machines that weigh three to five tons sometimes so yeah just inc incredibly incredibly talented it sounds not totally unlike uh, what it must be like operating and maintaining a loom yeah. Having that mechanical finesse. Yeah, they're very good. Um, yeah, the looms, because uh, we've got so many different ones, um, it, it, it is a case of, you know, now we will get entire new parts cast um, from other ones. So the, the, the main one that we use is the, the Hutchinson Hollingsworth ones. We've got five of those, I think, plus X number in bits. And to, to accumulate that, I think I've, over the years, probably bought about 11. Um, but I'm doing quite an interesting one at the moment. So the, the loom used to be made in a variety of different sizes. And the widest one was 120 inches wide, and the smallest one was 40 inches wide. Now, a 40-inch loom is super useful, but they're very, very hard to come by. So what we've decided to do, and this is actually something they used to do with the apprentices, you take a 100-inch loom, you cut it in half, you take about 50 or 60 inches out of the middle, and then you put it back together. 
So you end up with the most fantastic um, sample loom that only weaves about a meter wide, which sounds daft, but it's actually really, really useful. Hmm. Now, how do you actually work out how to work on these looms? Because it must be a hell of a lot of reverse engineering and thinking about now, how, how does this all happen? I've met many people in my time who have studied engineering, and then I've met people who are kind of savants of it. Now, where on the spectrum are you? Um, the spectrum. Uh, good question. Uh, I don't know. Um, it's so stupid. Uh, this, it, I just look at it and it, it does make sense. I don't know why. Because I mean, I'm, I'm not uh, a car person. I don't like cars or drive. Um, I, I don't do anything to do with engines. Um, but weaving does just make sense. So I don't know. I haven't really got an answer to that. <laughs> because all, all the various looms, they are sort of slightly different in how they're put together and how they work. And... They are, but then they all work on the same basis, which is this thing called the circle of timing, which is kind of like that thing from The Lion King, the circle of life. So you work from the motor through the loom and everything should be set at a certain uh, a certain setting in, and it's it's measured in degrees in the same way as an engine is and so what's amazing is that pretty much the rules that started to apply to looms in the 1820s more or less still apply to the looms that we have now except obviously their loom is vastly different and a lot faster so yeah because I noticed you have everything from a Hattersley in your collection and, and upwards. Yeah. So that there has been an evolution in in the mechanicals. Mm, I think, I mean, the newest one we've got is from the 90s, which in loom terms is, is quite new. Um, we would quite like to get something even newer, actually, just to complete the, the, the whole timeline. Um, so the earliest one we've got is about 1870. Um, and they're all what are called tappet controlled looms. They have no imagination and they have no ambition in life. They just want to do one thing. So when you see a sort of picture of a Victorian mill with hundreds and hundreds of looms in it, those are most likely Lancashire looms. Um, they, um, they were made in the millions. And there were lots of different companies that made them. And normally they, they, were, they were quite narrow. They'd only weave sort of 30 inches to perhaps 40 inches. And then over time, they started getting bigger. Um, and by, and they were semi-automatic, I should point that out. Um, the first automatic looms came in in about 1897. Uh, and that was um, Richard Northrop, actually a Yorkshireman in America working for the Draper Company. So we don't, we did have one of those, but the, the sometimes, so you asked how about looms and stuff. Sometimes you will get stuff which has so much missing that you, you can't do anything with it. Um, and it you just and it'll sit there for a bit and you sort of wonder what what you're gonna do. Because you don't even have anything to go off. Um so at the moment we've got a, a Hodgson loom, which is incredibly rare. Um, very unusual to find. There's only probably a, a handful still around. Now the one we've got was probably made in the twenties, I suppose. Um, vast amount of it missing, but then we've got a Butterworth and Dickinson, which is very similar. So we'll be able to sort of um, not yeah, make it up. We'll just be able to fill in the gaps. 
sort of with that. But in terms of how it works, like we know how that is, but any parts that are missing, we can just get fabricated. And it's much easier to go to an engineer and say, hey, can you make me something that looks like this if you've nicked one off another loom? From a sense of producing actual cloth, does it make sense to have all these different looms? Ah, yes, because. <laughs> so, for example, we have one loom that was made in about eight, like somewhere between 1818 and 18. Oh, yeah, they never put dates on these things, by the way. So you never really know. And then the other thing is, so say, say you have a, say a company buys a brand new loom in about 1880. They then use it for 20 years. And as they use it, they keep breaking stuff. And then create, but they've got hundreds of other looms. So then, you know, they'll take a couple of looms apart and build a one good one. And then probably after it's 20 something years old, they'll sell it to a different company and buy some new stuff or whatever. And these looms just pinged around the place. So it's very rare to find one that is even remotely original. So for example, the one of the one of the Lancashire looms we've got is entirely original apart from the sleigh, which was put in in the 50s. So and you sometimes it's just a case of you might have a different maker's mark or even something as simple as the paint is different because over the years they did they went from black to green to sort of post-war um greeny colors so um yes are they worth keeping yes because it's not about what can it do it's finding something that it can do that you can then use it to pay for itself with if that makes any sense so mm-hmm. one of the old this this 1880s loom that we've got the only paying job that it does is weaving napkins for incredibly fancy restaurants that's it but it does a beautiful beautiful job of that so and it just sits right. there and does that so it has a purpose exactly nice. and it's been beautifully restored it's not going anywhere um and it pays for itself so yeah what sort of other specialities are there um what else we got we've got i mean we can swap them around for doing different things um i am trying to think uh oh yeah so again some of the older looms that they are they're more versatile in some ways so we recently were working doing a little project with mit weaving a 100% metallic yarn for the space station. And the thing is, if you tried to put that through a normal modern loom, it wouldn't like it. I mean, ours didn't like it, but they did it. And the, t- the time that it took us was much less than having to set up and recal- like retune a modern loom. So I think, yeah, our stuff is it's quite, it's not as fussy if that makes any sense. I notice how sort of uh, suavely you just slipped in weaving for the space station. I know, it's hilarious. <laughs> it's yeah. quite incredible. Uh, I mean, how, how do you even get jobs like this? Because it, it was a sort of development thing. It was all, I I mean, the, the one, I think it's gone for, for zero gravity testing just probably recently. I think I'm not really sure, but then the really interesting one is I got to dress up as a geography teacher and do a Zoom call. Oh, by the way, this whole Zoom call thing has passed me by completely. Um, the only thing I've got to use Zoom calls for for the last what twelve months is um, online dating. Uh, so this is yeah, it's 
I haven't had to do anything like this for work. It's it's really new to me, so it's quite novel. But I did do a Zoom call for and um, trying to explain on a on a on a whiteboard how to hand weave a loop pile fabric. So basically, a carpet. This is really clever. So if you have loops in um, in a fabric and then put it on the outside of a spaceship you can then and the loops are all metal i forgot to mention then they can somehow using space magic detect how big and how fast things hitting it are yes that's the face i made and you had to explain this to someone yeah. who's explained to you yeah it i you know it yeah so we could have we could have tried to make it here but we'd have had to build a machine to do it so we do we do build machines now to do like really weird little jobs so we're doing one at the moment um probably um for working with bacterial cellulose so um i mean anyone listening to this podcast it's going to be all over the show we've gone from space to bacterial cellulose so you can extract <laughs> the cellulose from um Obviously, so with things like viscous rayon, so you cut it, everybody knows this, you cut a tree down, throw half of it away because you can't use it, then you turn it into tree soup using some really fucky chemicals, and then you extrude it through a hole into sulfuric acid, which is also really awful. So that's viscous rayon. But then obviously now we have tensile, which is supposed to be an awful lot better. But then what if you could actually, rather than using virgin wood pulp, you could extract it from, uh, well, you can extract it from all sorts of things. So if you go and look up something called Wilson fiber, Wilson fiber is basically a um, pelletized uh, pellet. No, it's a pellet uh, of um, municipal waste. I love this. So the, these guys in, um, made a machine called an auto. Oh, it's a type of autoclave that, mm, what's the word? Sorts your rubbish out. Anyway, so there's, you, oh God, yeah. Sorry, I'm going all over. Are we talking food waste or are you talking just One of my favorite things is municipal sludge. So um, you can extract the cellulose from anything, supposedly. So um, a couple of universities, um, Leeds and York, are currently working on this thing to extract the cellulose from agricultural waste and from potentially this Wilson. uh, I love the fact that the guy named this this fiber wilson fiber after himself it's basically garbage which is i i find quite funny um amazing i love their website um got really excited about that um so then bacterial cellulose i should have had some here to show you it's a basically a sheet uh grown in a dish of cellulose and it's quite it's sort of like a it's actually the stuff they use in um what's it called uh audio speakers it's blah. anyway oh. so currently we might be making a machine to um essentially shred and then tear apart like a garnishing machine um and then open as a fiber this stuff i don't think anything i just said made any sense to yep it sounds pretty cutting edge. I've come across the the growing in a dish when they were making uh, is it vegan leather? Ah, uh, yeah, the mushroom stuff. Yes, yeah. Um, and there is a lot of weird science going on around these things at yeah. the moment. 
So yeah, I did a uh, just before Christmas. So I was working for the um, the RCA, who's got the future materials thing. So did it was working on basically uh, how we would do that in the UK. But the the biggest problem, not the not the biggest problem, because it's science. I mean, I I'm lost with the science, by the way. I did the, it's all way above me. But um, I mean, the the viscous rayon um, industry in England left the country thirty years ago at least. It just doesn't exist here. There is nowhere that extrudes cellulose. In fact, the nearest place uh, that's actually really interesting, I think, is in Sweden. Um, and they have a complete uh, sort of boutique uh, extrusion line there, which is really exciting if you're into that sort of thing. I think both Sweden and Finland are doing things with cellulose. Yes. Which, of course, is natural because there's a lot of trees there. Yeah, yeah. Just a, a slight aside, you mentioned that tensile might not be the nice... Don't know enough about it. I know that it's sort of 97% um, reuses all the chemicals and stuff, but I don't, I just, I don't know enough about it. It's, um, yeah, it's all a bit beyond me. <laughs> it's not... I have been critical of, critical of bamboo before because it's yeah. going to be such a wonderful thing, but they're not actually using the fibres. It's, again, just making a viscose out of the cellulose. Uh, it's with all these things. It's you, you can find holes in anything if you really want to. So I don't know. They're, they're obviously trying really hard to do it better. I don't know. I, it's not something I've got a lot of experience with. We're sort of linen, wool, uh, cotton, never got into tensile we were sort of lower counts and stuff like that mm. all the traditional fibers plus space station oh, space yarn. yeah yeah <laughs> the thing we've got into recently is um uh we we also get we buy quite a lot of um x stock yarn which is i mean i don't really consider this sustainable i just consider it great because it's cheap but you know, there's a lot of people jumping on it. Oh, yes, it's sustainable because it's secondhand yarn. Well, okay. But it's like buying a secondhand book. <laughs> it's just the same thing. But um, so we get, we'll go to a, like when a big mill has yarn left over from weaving, they'll probably put it on a shelf and leave it there for sort of ages. And then when they haven't used it, then sell it. So you can buy all that. And it's, 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 it's perfectly good yarn. It's like brand new, but um, obviously it's X stock, so you can go and buy that. That's quite good. And you also you have unpredictable amounts of it. That's and... it, and you'll never get it again. Sometimes, so if it was maybe a specific dye lot, you'll never be able to get that specific thing again, or or mix it with anything else, or stuff like that. Yeah. By the sound of it, a lot of the work you do is sort of short runs small jobs, odd jobs, mm -hmm. weird jobs. I mean, what, what does a sort of typical work week look like? I, I don't have a typical work week, um, but actually probably the jobs that actually uh, at least used to be the, the thing that we do the most of is the orders between three to 600 meters. So, you know, um, those are the ones that we like the best. Um, the small jobs, uh, they're um, 
so I'm just trying to think what we're working on at the moment. So if I was just to reel off the sort of the volumes that we're dealing with at the moment, we've got a couple of 300s, uh, a 180, a 500, and a 600. So that's just what I'm working on that I can remember at the moment. And then we've got all the, the small stuff, which is sort of 30 meters of sampling in three different um, structures or something like that. So we do, got, we do quite a lot of that. Um, so that's what, if you want to make a range. So you'll put a warp on and then by changing the structure or changing the weft, you can get various different patterns. Yeah. And people come to you for this because it's stuff they can't get elsewhere. I mean, other people will do it. Um, yeah, we're not. We're definitely not the only people that can do it. But we we do we do a lot of clearly we do some unusual stuff as well. So um, I've, I had I had to make a list of the stuff because <laughs> I can't I can't remember things. Um, like uh, what ages ago um, we worked with an artist called Martino Gampa. So. He came to us and we put a cream woolen warp on the loom. And then while we were weaving it, we got syringes filled with dye and just jabbed them into the warp and injected the warp with dye. Um, so then we're actually weaving it wet as it comes through. Like there's not a lot of the mills that would let you do that. Um, and yeah, the, I think that's another good thing. I mean, the, the looms are so old and they're all cast iron, the wet yarn and the wet dye is not going to affect them they're just gonna we just covered things with cling film and got on with it and then all that fabric at the end was used to upholster a ceiling in a restaurant so yeah i even that was yeah i'm trying to think now i, I first noticed you when um when you did the cloth for some jackets that Lyle and Scott made. Yeah, they were really good, nice. Good few years ago now. Mm. That was the sort of made in London concept where yeah. you'd made the cloth, they sewed the jackets there, and it was really pretty nice. And as a concept, it was brilliant. I do see you You have that on Instagram occasionally. Yeah, that I've, I should send you mine because yours looks immaculate. Um, so I got one of the jackets. Well... Uh, mine's trashed. Uh, <laughs> it, it'd be interesting to do it. I saw one on eBay the other day, and I should have bought it. I should have. I should have got it because mine. I've been wearing it in the mill, and if you open the, it's only when you open the pocket and look inside at the original blue that you realise how much it's worn. It's really, it's, it's nice actually. Yeah, mm, it was a nice cloth as well, but that must have been. 2015, 16, something like not that. long after you started, I think. No, because we started actually in the beginning of 2012, really, for real, real, like actually taking orders um, and then went from there, really. Yeah, we've worked. I'm trying to uh, hang on. Let me again try and remember. Mm. So back in 2015, I think some of the first people we were, oh yeah, we so we, we got an um, double RL, we did some stuff with them, and Dot Martins, and obviously the Nike, that, the Nike thing took several years to come into fruition, so we did our own Nike trainers, that was good, and I was made like... So, so Nike also was a major player for you, because I was talking to Harris Tweed a couple of weeks ago and we got into the old uh, how Nike saved Harris Tweed story. Oh, yeah. 
but, but clearly they're casting about all over the place for interesting fabrics. Well, Nike, because they're just so good at what they do, they're always they're always at the forefront. If there's something new, they're they're going to be there. Like they're they're really good like that. And I mean, at the time, I mean, I, I uh, <laughs> all this stuff. I hope it doesn't sound like I really know what I'm doing because I really don't. Like it was just completely. I mean, they came to see the mill in the really early days when we were in Clapton, and I, yeah, it. it <laughs> but they they are they're really, you know, three guys came over and they're just so so lovely. <laughs> it's really really nice. I can just see how the, how the meeting was going at Nike when they were planning this trip. So the next big thing is this guy in East London. He's got some rubbish old looms, doesn't know what he's doing, and it's going to be massive. Yeah, I know. I know. It's ridiculous, isn't it? I, the one thing I never saw coming was all the footwear. Like, we've done so much footwear. I didn't, I mean, apart from Nike, we worked with a company called Vivo Barefoot, did shoes with them. We did Manolo Blahnik, Doc Martens, all these sort of things. Never... I didn't think anyone would buy stuff for shoes. Um, and then we do sell quite a lot in Japan. We've sort of not been doing that for a, a year or two. Um, and then just trying to think of other things. Um, so your customer list is starting to look like a pretty much a who's who of big brands or cool brands. Sort of, but um, but then there's all the other stuff. Like, there's a lot of stuff that we do. I mean, there's all the film stuff um, that. I mean, after today, I've, just after this, we're going to go and see the some people from the Royal Opera House. So this is a lot of opera that buys fabric from us and um, all sorts of TV things. Um, Disney. Yeah, yeah, that's we're doing a lot, quite a bit with them at the moment. I'm just trying to think of oh and then the other thing that we've been doing so this the thing that I've got on at the moment is um we've got an art we're sort of this traveling it's such a shame like I know everybody's had everything cancelled in the last year or so but we were we were about two weeks away it was lucky actually that we stopped when we did so I was building a shipping container mill so shipping containers normally open at the two small ends. So you can buy these ones called full access where the long side just completely opens. And we'd figured it all out. It was going to um, be, everything was going to be in there. A pattern cutting table, sewing machines, looms. We've got a washing machine, a huge wooden washing machine that we cut around with us. And it was going to all live in the shipping container and then go on tour and we had it booked in for craft week in Cold Drops Yard. We had two weeks in Cold Drops Yard. And then it was going to France, which it actually did, but not in the container. And then now it's at a place called Trinity Boy Wharf in um, Canning Town, which is worth a visit. So the whole idea was, you know, you could, there's going to be this sort of performance art of just people frantically running all this stuff making these garments and then we'd have people talking you through all the different stages for anyone who came to see it um so that's something we want to expand on um but we were when um covid hit we were about a week away from buying the shipping container so it was really lucky that we didn't actually yeah, otherwise we'd been stuck with it what do you do with it <laughs> 
Yeah. So part of what you do is also performance art, uh, educational, spreading the word. Huge amount of education. So um, um, when people, at the moment, people can't visit the mill, but when they could, um, we'd have school school groups come and uh, rule one. Um, having all this stuff, it's great. But what's the point if people can't come and see it? You know, there's nothing... There's nothing like this in the south of England and there's actually in probably in the UK. There's no way we can show you the entire history of mechanized weaving from pretty much more or less how it started all the way through to, to present, which is ridiculous. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of museums get sort of um, that they'll fo focus on an era that they've got um, and then, so a really, a really good museum, by the way, is um, the Welsh National Woolen Museum. So I was working with them quite a bit recently, and they're amazing because they've got um, everything. They've got ca uh, carding, spinning, weaving, and finishing, but then they haven't got any modern machinery. So you you, you get a really good picture, but you don't get a sort of full picture. So yeah, that's something something that we can do. But uh, what would be really, really great is if we could reopen a huge site again in London um, that was aimed at being a visitor centre. That would be good. Because otherwise, what's the point if people can't come and see it? So, Do you find there's much interest among young people in, in the art of weaving? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Just... By, by the sound of it, it's not just you working in your mill. I hope there's more than you, otherwise you'll run off your feet. Um, so I have a colleague called Beth, Beth Caldrick, who is um, amazing. Uh, and that's it. And then we have a cat. I've no idea how you managed to do all, <laughs> all that you do, but uh, okay. Um, what was I going to say? Yeah, Beth's, uh, Beth's incredible. Um, I think weaving is pretty... I, I don't expect... The, th the other thing is when people come and visit... You've just got to, you know, it depends who's coming to visit for how much information you really need to impart on people. Like, it's pretty bloody niche, really. It's not, I mean, nobody parties like a weaver, but it's an acquired thing. Like, you don't need to try and force all this history and all this information onto people. They're just a nice sort of surface. This is this, is this. this is how it works and, and whatever. And And I think people respond better to that actually rather than battering them so we don't have boards or anything we we're for especially for safety so we'll we'll walk people through the mill and it's much more of sort of personal this is what this is this is how it works have you got any questions this is what this does and the other thing that i realized with really early on with weaving is you could read you could read a book about how to warp using a modern warping mill or an old warping mill or whatever you could read 20 of them and still not really understand what's going on you've got to see it and it, it, that's and then you'll get it and you'll get it instantly was this how you yourself became a, a weaver because coming from sewing i mean how, how did you actually learn it um <laughs> it just just uh i just i i, I went and got a loom that was literally it <laughs> Um, I was worried you were going to say, oh, I just brought up YouTube. Oh, There's this guy somewhere. Oh, God, this is a crazy thing now. There's a lot of this stuff. We have, um, we do a little bit on YouTube, but not really. 
and yeah but there's so much more there's so much more information out there now isn't there you can find out about anything but um yeah i remember talking to you a while back and you mentioned you had something going on in africa as well oh my gosh yeah so this is on hold at the moment but this is going to be amazing hopefully so um yeah this is very exciting so i got a phone call from a guy i used to know several years ago it's not he just moved back to south africa like and so it's not you know not easy to keep in touch anyway he's like oh daniel yeah um do you remember when we talked about opening a mill in africa and i was like uh yeah he's like well yeah i think we can do it now (laughs) oh okay great so um i mean it's we started talking about this in probably january last year so then it's all just everything stopped but um so there's a place called Makunda, and uh, I think the plan is to, and it won't be old machinery. It'll be a little bit, uh, it'll all be um, fairly new, um, uh, a mixture of shuttle looms and Dornier rapier looms. And what's really weird is South Africa has quite a big spinning quite a decent dyeing and finishing but there's not a lot of weaving so um they they want to run it as a sort of um uh what is it a local enterprise in this town it, it's a town it used to be called grahamstown now or it's gone back to being called mcunda I, I can't remember which way around it is and um yeah so that's in in the process but it, it with these things you know stuff just stuff can take years to come into fruition you can't sort of rush it but then once what i find is once something starts is it's actually quite quick a lot of this stuff is it's not that difficult once you get going so after many years in the garment and weaving trade and so forth you must have met quite a few characters oh my god yeah hang on so one thing right <laughs> we're talking about the criminals like these people are genuinely criminals like proper fucking criminals <laughs> And what happened was, um, when we moved to Epping, it just sort of, I don't know, they were just drawn to us for some reason. And we and they just loved us. And they were all these geezers. And they'd all come around and be like, oh, yeah, let's go around and talk to the queers. And <laughs> they were awful people. <laughs> like, but, oh, my God, they'd do anything for you. Oh, every, everybody is a character. Um, so somebody I'm, I sort of see most weeks is Tony Sovereign, the sewing machine repairman. So he is an absolute geezer. Um, and he, he goes around all of London fixing everybody's sewing machines for them. And there's, there's, there's him and like a handful of other people that do this. Um, I mean, and he's, he's, he's the real deal. Um, grew up above a fruit and veg shop in Dalston. So, um, see him and he I mean he does all these different companies like I know um he's always in and out of Tom Ford doing all their machines for all the alterations because I was having a coffee with a friend that works at Tom Ford yesterday we we're talking about him and it's him and his son and you could make a, TV, a really quite successful tv program about these two because all they do is like obviously they're, they're quite good with sewing machines 
but the bickering they're like oh my goodness <laughs> and the, and all the hilarious phrases um and i I'm, I'm there like noting this stuff down so they were talking i was up there the other day and they're talking about buying some buttons as in on off buttons he's like yeah yeah we'll go here and get them off here and they're like <laughs> i hadn't heard this before. he goes no 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 don't get them off him he'll pull your pants down <laughs> as in he'll, he'll charge you too much money so yeah all these amazing people and then um there's a factory up in edmonton run by a guy called jock who's turkish um i mean i don't i've asked him so many times where jock came from but no i have no idea um yeah just all sorts of really really interesting people um again and then through the weaving even and I mean everybody in weaving is quite strange I think and it and that's I think even anyone in weaving would admit that textiles as a whole is is quite because you spend a lot of time on your own for a start um so yeah it's it's bizarre you've got to have a very very specific if you want to sort of do weaving properly you've got to have a very very specific sort of mindset which you know you just got to accept you're you're going to be it's incredibly repetitive so if you like repetitive tasks then it's great and then it's it's like sewing it's a fight against yourself it's a war basically you know just the satisfaction the satisfaction from if you wind a warp and it's supposed to be 72 inches wide and it comes out exactly 72 inches wide um yes if you know what i'm talking about then yeah it's it's just great. It's what people's come into the mill and they go, Oh, you love tinkering with them. Don't you? No, no, I hate tinkering with them. I love them when they're working. Like there's the, the best days are the days where you can set the one or two looms on and just weave. It's just fantastic. It, it really is. And you can, you can listen and just hear that they're working perfectly. I don't, I, I, was, I was down in Wales doing these looms at the, the museum and there's another mill next door called Melon Typhi and they have about seven Dobcross, I think. And uh, Raymond, who runs it, his wife, she, she actually said, she goes, you have no interest in, in fabric, do you? All, you? all you want is to get the looms running right. And that's pretty much it. If you can, it's like if you are a conductor and you can, if you can train your ear as a musician to isolate each individual, each individual instrument in a piece of music, that's what you do with looms. You can, every single little sound. So the the one as the shuttle lands in the box, you should hear one note. There should never be two notes because that means it's not going in straight. As it picks, you should hear different things, and you'll hear a problem a long way before you see it hmm. so is it fair to say that it's uh, monotonous and meticulous work but i have heard tell that nobody parties like a nobody weaver. parties like a weaver i mean beth rides a. she's <laughs> oh my goodness yes nobody parties like a weaver it is so true um that, that saying is so true um yep <laughs> but this has become something of a uh, I hesitate to say a meme, but it has well, become a hashtag. So <laughs> we have a whole load of mill sayings, actually. Um, so 
only part is like the weaver is basically the main one but then um, it's only weaving if you have to do it twice that is a common one the number of times you'll do something and it's it's very easy to lose a lot of money very quickly actually with weaving um especially that you wouldn't believe the number of mistakes that get made because it's it's especially if you're a bigger team and yeah so Beth and I were doing something once and we were weaving something and then about I don't know an hour in we sort of realized we'd picked up the wrong green yarn and you think oh how did you manage that well you know when they're two very very similar greens that's easy to do um and what we started just so many little mistakes you've got to be on it all the time um but then uh if you do have a problem, and then it's one of life's great mysteries, that's another one of our sayings. And there's a whole heap of them. We're now actually, every time we buy a new reed, um, there's a company in England that makes the reeds that go in the looms. And the reed is this sort of um, how it comb that puts the fabric into place. And normally what they'll do is they'll engrave all the, way, the dimensions of what it is and the company that bought it. We've actually asked them to not do that. They engrave what it is and then one of our sayings. So they really have become quite a, a London cloth company thing now. Yeah, they think we're stupid, yeah. And the other thing is weaving is, <laughs> I think if, it, if we didn't make it fun, we probably would have stopped by now because you've got to make these things fun. So, yeah. I mean, it certainly sounds like you're having lots of fun. Um, I mean, I'm very tempted to become a weaver. Oh, um, definitely do. But um, we're building a worm uh, farm uh, at the moment. That's quite a two two and a half thousand litre worm farm. So two and a half thousand litres. Yeah. that's huge. Because I was talking to Christopher Rayburn last week, and he has worms at home in his flat. Get out! I didn't know that. I haven't listened. To and he does a little. He does a little. Um, worm chat every sunday where he talks about how the lads are doing no on instagram okay i, have, yeah. I must go and listen to that so uh so uh there's a, a collaborative possibility there well so for the last three years we haven't had a rubbish collection so we um we cancelled we cancelled uh, the bin men and so now you haven't got a choice we have to get rid of this all this stuff somehow so I don't know if you know what an IBC is. I can't remember what it stands for. It's those big white plastic water containers, the gigantic ones. So we've got two of those mm -hmm. and we cut the top off one. And then we cut the bottom off another and we've stacked them up. And then inside that, we've built a little cage. And then you can buy worms by the kilo. So they'll eat all. Also, obviously, we have wool and cotton and just bits of cuttings and crap that ends up on the floor. So all that goes in there, and the worms slowly are going to eat that. Um, I'm not quite sure how long it's going to take them to eat this much stuff. But then we can also put bits of other stuff in there too. So I think it should speed it up. Because what we did try is um, we were working with someone recently. I don't know if you know about forcing rhubarb to grow. This is not something I know an awful lot about. But apparently what they used to do is to stop the rhubarb from getting hit by the frost. They would dig a big hole, fill it with loom waste. And this is going back into old whenever. Um, 
put basically a layer of all this wool and and offcuts and crap in the ground, bury it, and then that would act as some sort of buffer against the frost. So we gave away a load of that stuff a couple of years ago, and they're try, trying that out, forcing their rhubarb. So okay, so yeah, we we've we, we've been operating as much of a sort of nothing to landfill policy as possible, but it's unless you've got quite a lot of space, it does make these things quite difficult. Do worms really thrive on cotton and wool? Well, as long as we keep throwing like all the banana, well, it's all biodegradable and they will eat it. Um, and then we also obviously all the banana skins and other things from like kitchen waste that can all go in there. And it mm. should kind of, I did a, I did a bit of <laughs> looking into it. They should eat it. Like wool, wool and cotton will biodegrade, obviously. Um, so I think it will hopefully just speed it up a bit. We're not talking about tons and tons. And so as long as we just sort of put it in gradually, I don't know, we'll see if it works. Um, it might not. <laughs> but you'll be uh, self-supplied with worms for, for fishing. Uh, yeah, all that fishing I do, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, now, there was one thing I wanted to ask you about. There has been a sort of resurged interest in British made denim. Oh, yeah. Now I notice you offer about sixty flavors of uh, various denims. Where, where are you situated in this? Is there much interest in your denims? Mm, we don't really do it how they want it. So um, things like we we do a salvage denim, but uh, I don't know. It's. Um, we used to get a lot of people coming to us and they'd go, oh, I've got this piece of Japanese denim. Can you make it like this? And we just go, um, no, why don't you just buy that? Um, like, I'm not going to try and copy a Japanese denim. The, there are things that we don't have in the UK. So there is no sanfronizing plant currently. So you wouldn't be able to get it. It's really the finishing that's, that's missing. I mean, we can weave it and we've done it. But I also we don't really have the exactly the right looms to do it. So when you're weaving denim, there's a whole because we it's it's cotton, obviously. You've got to weave it as high attention as you can possibly do with as small a shed as possible, and also the loom's got to be quite fast to make it efficient enough. Because denim isn't a particularly expensive fabric. Like there, it really is an upper limit on certain things because if you're buying a pair of jeans, for example, because that's what denim goes into, and I mean, what I don't know, what would you say the upper limit on a pair of salvage jeans is? Like generally, I have no idea. Well, the sort of expensive ones now tend to go for three, four hundred pounds. Four hundred pounds. So, yeah, and it would be interesting to know what they're paying for that denim. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's so we we do we we don't say denim much. We we weave something ridiculous, like uh, well over probably pushing like two hundred different structures of indigo in different weights. And it's something we've always done. It's something we've done since really early on. But actually, doing a salvage denim, um, we've got we've got one at the moment, but it's. It's quite uh, not light, isn't the right word. It just sort of um, it's not that uh, sort of. It's not like wearing a cardboard. It's not super stiff. 
You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can achieve that, but yeah, I don't know. And also, I'm not really sure. I mean, I don't know. I, I no, I've no, I have no strong strong feelings. <laughs> Uh, there is one company up in the north of England now who are making a mm. British denim, which has been used by, well, a few of the sort of leading denim makers in Britain. So I'm just wondering if there's a, if there's an opportunity there. Yeah, it's it's we've been asked for it so many times. Um, a lot of it is, a lot of it is down to the yarn. Um, so we get all of our indigo from Spain. Or at least we did until I phoned them just before Christmas and was like, oh, hey, Javier, how are you? Uh, can we get another kit, pallet of yarn? And then they were like, no, we've closed. Oh, okay. So that's a real shame. Um, so now, I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm not really, I mean, salvage denim is great, but I think I did a, a little look at it a while ago. And I think it takes 18 times more energy to weave a meter of salvage denim or something stupid like that. I can't remember. I don't know. It's all down to water and consumption of power and the time it takes to weave. I don't know. I'm not sure that we could do it cheap enough, I think. Mm. I suppose the thing to do would be to make a sort of essentially London or British denim, mm. which was not, not like the Japanese at all, really. Exactly. And yeah. certainly not like the Italians. No. I mean, the the Japanese is all sort of artisan and slubby and wonky and whatnot, yeah. and the Italian is sort of super perfect. Yeah, I think that's the problem so, with ours. Ours comes out too too polished. Uh, it's too much like an Italian denim. Then, yeah, ours is quite clean. Yeah. But we did. Um, we've we've recently actually last year we did three new finishes. So what you can do is, in the good old days, they would impregnate these things with stuff like formaldehyde. Obviously, that's not a good thing. So, um, but there, there's new things you can do. You can do res like resin coating and um, all these other uh, finishes that we've we've done. But I I don't know. I just I think if we were going to do it, we'd have done it by now. And mm. um, I don't know. You really need someone to approach you and with a really good idea. It, it would have to, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you need, like, we we did have, we we got the perfect loom for it, but there was too much too much missing. That was the that was the issue. So yeah, just one of those things. Hmm. There you go. What, what, of all the various fabrics and styles and what you make what would be your favorite or does that change all the time yeah just um all the time um it's it's so much more about the process than what comes out at the end for me so i know i mean one of the the, the thing that came out probably most recently that's on our instagram from just over christmas it's weird because obviously if you weave something for a film or whatever you probably did it a year and a half ago or longer by the time it makes it by the time it comes out so that there's a very that we did a very very oversized check for um the that christmas film jingle jangle that came out and 
I remember at the time we really enjoyed that. Like film film stuff is is really satisfying because they they're coming to you with a very specific problem, and they also have a very different approach. So when we did the Star Wars stuff, they came to us with a A zero printout of exactly what they wanted. Like we don't get that from fashion designers. Like they are so like meticulous with just the proportions of a stripe, for example. It's and it's it's really and it's a it's a lot more problem solving than than working for fashion. It's more it's way more interesting. So trying to trying to do more of that. I mean we're doing um you, sorry. No, no, you dangled a big fat worm there and I'm going to bite. Uh, you mentioned Star Wars. <laughs> what did you do for Star Wars? Um, we've, we've done stuff for most of the recent ones. Um, so the, the, the one that had a lot in was the Han Solo film. The whole end of that film is all our fabric. So, But obviously all, they came to us and said, wait, and I think, again, the time frames on these things are, are really, really, really hectic. So you might just have a month to do everything and you think oh a month's quite a long time but it's it's you could get hold of the yarn you've got to have it all approved and then you've got to wash it all and all this and oh yeah and weave it obviously um but yeah it's it's nice having to do that because you know they're not they're not weaving people so they don't really know how it works but they don't need to know how it works because and so we just fill in all the gaps and um yeah it's really nice and in addition to Star Wars, you've also been doing Disney work? Yeah, so we're doing a couple of Disney things at the moment. Um, so, um, yeah, none of that's come out, though. So, <laughs> so but when it does, uh, yeah. Uh, it's sort of a, the, the duality of uh, your existence is being portrayed here, where you're sort of slaving away in this cold factory, working the looms mm. and all this. And on the other hand, you've got all this sort of uh, films and... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the sort of glamorous life. Oh, it's so glamorous. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah. So if I go to a discotheque and uh, jump the queue, <laughs> weavers straight in the IP area. <laughs> it sounds pretty glamorous. Oh, I know. No. It's, um, anyway. Um, no, I, it's, I'm trying to think like other stuff that we're working on at the moment. Like cutting this loom in half is something I've wanted to do for ages. And it'll be amazing when it's done. Um, we're making a little video about it, but every uh, every piece, because obviously if you're cutting a loom up, you've got to completely take it to pieces. So, I mean, down to nothing. And so I sort of took it as an opportunity to strip and repaint every single piece. So we're going to end up with this absolutely immaculate, beautiful mini loom. And, but I started that in summer 2020 and then we sort of got to the cutting point and then bits of it have been cut because it's got to be cut on a on a bandsaw because uh, mm. bandsaws are very fine whereas we've only got one of those massive disc cutter chop saw things so the biggest bits have now gone to an engineer's and they're quite busy so we're just waiting for that to come back and be drilled and then we can bring it back weld it all together and then put it all back and it'll look amazing but that'll be really useful because and again, it's not just doing it because I fancy the sound of doing it. It'll be the perfect pattern loom. So for a lot of these small jobs where people come along and go, oh, I just need to see what this would look like before we go into a, 
500 meter piece, for example, we can we could warp, I don't know, 10, 20 meters. But remember, it's only half the width, so it's only half the work. And then just mm. do all that pattern development, and then it's done. It's it, it'll be and it'll be quick. And the advantage with doing that on an on a on one of these looms compared to a, a more modern one is um, so the the biggest problem with weaving is going from one job to the next. That is the most time-consuming thing. Weaving is fast, but the changing jobs can take ages. But with an old loom, even me on my own, I can have one job out, all the gear, all the warp and everything, and a fresh one in in probably half an hour, 45 minutes, if it's all drawn in and everything. So, but you could, you know, you'd struggle to do it on your own with a modern loom, unless you had all the, the right lifting stuff and whatever. So once we get back to normal days, will the open days and tours be starting up again? Yeah, so we're going to be doing them, going to be doing the the little uh, installation thing at Trinity Boy Wharf. Um, I think the first dates for that, we, we've penciled some in for the end of March. Who knows? Um, the one good thing about that place is the ho the whole front of the, the 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 installation opens up, so we wouldn't actually have to have people indoors. So that's quite good, and we limit the numbers and stuff. Um, so we'll see see what happens. Um, but and yeah, and then that's there until July, and then it all goes up to Scotland for an installation up there. So yeah, it's good. But if people want to uh, sort of stay uh, abreast of what's happening oh, yeah. is it your instagram yeah, to follow instagram. our website is absolute pants so it's it, it's a really nice website it's just i haven't updated it for so long that everything is done on instagram um and then if anyone does want to come and see it just drop me an email and we'll find you a slot assuming that the end of march is realistic but we'll see yeah who knows who knows in closing daniel anything you'd like to mention or talk about um <sighs> tell me about chainsaws uh, okay <laughs> so this is this is the bonus chainsaw edition podcast yep so when um while i was up in scotland for lockdown i didn't go up there especially for lockdown i just happened to get locked down in scotland i was staying in an airbnb with this lovely couple called Stuart and andrea and they had the crappiest approach to firewood. It was like this sort of subsistence. Oh, we'll take the dog for a walk and we'll pick up some firewood. No, it was rubbish. And um, I am a massive fan of the chainsaw. Um, so I don't think it will surprise you to know that I own seven. And um, yeah, the largest one is the size of a small motorbike. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So <laughs> I, I was chatting with Andrew and Stuart. Now you got to remember, I'm just staying in an Airbnb. They don't. I've stayed with them before, but they don't know me that well. I was like, "Don't worry, I'll fix your firewood problem." So I, um, <laughs> I just got some stuff posted up, um, all my safety gear and whatnot. And they live in pretty much the middle of nowhere in Scotland, surrounded by like com uh, commissioned forest you know, like um, a Norwegian pine timber. And okay. off I went, ran, like all the fallen trees, blah, 
took all that to pieces and then made them a beautiful, beautiful log pile. But yeah, I I do love a chainsaw. And it does make it into my Instagram occasionally. And um, I, so that's another thing actually about the mill. Like rule one of weaving is don't die. You know, weaving, all those machines, they they actively want to kill you. So, but it, we have a very, very good approach with health and safety. We have very little regard for it, but then we're also very, very safe because it's it's not, you know, they, they are really dangerous. And chainsaws too are very dangerous. And so occasionally, if I sort of feel like I'm getting a bit cocky, a little bit too overconfident, I'll just go and Google chainsaw injuries and that will scare you straight instantly. So, yeah. <laughs> but it's, yeah. <laughs> are your chainsaws uh, also orphans that you sort of bring back to life? No, no. So some of them, I've got a couple of older ones, but then most of them are quite modern. Yeah, and, and quite, quite good ones. Um, so yeah, but uh, so I do, uh, and literally, so the, the most important thing is that I do it for fun. So I'll go and do friends trees and stuff for fun because I don't want it to become a job because the same thing with sewing and the same thing happened with weaving. Oh, I really like sewing. Oh, I fucked it up by turning it into a job. Hey, I really like weaving. Hey, let's turn it into a job. So literally this, I just do it for fun and uh, go and knock people's trees over for them and chop them all up. It's great. I love it. There's a good bit of wisdom in what you said there <laughs> about not making the things you enjoy into yeah. a job. Yeah. At least not everything you enjoy. No, no, that's it. So, I mean, obviously, I still really love weaving. Um, but I think, I mean, my job's changed so much in the last three years. Weaving, the actual weaving is much, it's not, uh, I'm trying to, it's not that it's a background thing, but there are so many other elements now to what I'm doing that it's it's not that I just have to stand at a loom all day and mind the looms so it's and there's a lot more yeah so it's finding finding ways to to always keep it interesting over the winter especially try to do a, a little bit less in the mill we have terrible problems with the damp and the cold so january most of january was spent doing sewing this year yeah the, the looms do not like the damp this is the biggest problem so yeah and you do have a fairly big warehouse to yeah it's too you can't heat it this is the the the, the walls are basically made out of um digestive biscuits they're that thick and like in the roof it just goes straight out any heat just goes straight out the roof and the problem is so we have to keep the shuttles um at home and take them to work because what i find is that because there's like quite a dramatic shift in how much moisture is in the mill and the shuttle's made of wood, so they will expand and contract accordingly. And so if they get too expanding, then they get stuck in the boxes and you have to hit them harder and that's not good and all these things. So, yeah, it's just we really need to to figure out like a five-year where, where we're going to put the mill somewhere amazing that people can visit it and stuff like that. That's mm. not a really old building. Um, we need somewhere that's a bit it would be lovely to have a beautiful old mill but I think I'd quite like a beautiful brand new industrial unit that's like temperature <laughs> like insulated insulation that would be nice mm, the practical aspect of exactly. it exactly yeah yeah 
that's it. Anyway. Okay, Daniel, that was wonderful. And uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, Bye-bye from me. Okay, um, bye from me. And that was all for this week's episode of Gomology. Thank you very much to Daniel for being a great guest. You can find him on the web as londonclothco.com and londonclothco on Instagram. If you enjoyed this, you might enjoy my blog at worldtrustdad.com and also my new Gomology YouTube uh, videos. If you'd like to get in touch, the email address is gomology at worldtrustdad.com or send me a message via Instagram. You can also follow Gomology Podcast on Instagram for previews of the latest episode. I'd be really pleased if you gave a review or rating on Apple Podcast or even shared the podcast with a friend. It really helps uh, increase the reach. And that was all. Until next week, bye-bye. I don't know. I, I can imagine this is probably the worst podcast to listen to. It's just all over the place. Yeah. I I, I don't know. I hope this is um, makes even some semblance of sense. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>